the BHAG. Uh, I wasn't until this last week. Uh, BHAG stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. I'll say that again. Uh, yeah. Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. G-O-A-L-S. Yeah. Not gold. Some of you guys are... It, it's goals. Uh, what, what is a big, hairy, audacious goal? Well, I, I found the concept. Jim Collins has written a book. Uh, I've quoted his book, Good to Last, but the book that he wrote first was... was uh, let me say this again. Good to Great was the second book. The first book was Built to Last. And it's in his book. I tend to read people's works backwards, is, is what I do. It's a dyslexic issue in my life. But... His first book, Built to Last, he, it's, a, it's a book about business and it's a book about companies. And he's talking about the different traits of companies that, uh, that are successful and that are long-term companies. And, and uh, one of the things he says is that they have big, hairy, audacious goals. Um, B-H-A-G. It was a B-H-A-G when John Kennedy got up before the nation and said, we are going to put a man on the moon. That was a big, hairy, audacious goal, especially in the context of that particular time. Um, I was reading this week about a guy that I had never heard of, but a guy by the name of Frederick Tudor. Uh, Frederick Tudor was, uh, was a guy that lived in a wealthy family in New England in the 1800s. And uh, he got an idea. He had a brother that was not doing well physically, and he had traveled with his brother uh, trying to uh, improve his health situation. They went down to Cuba. They, they, were, they were just trying to find a climate that would improve uh, his, his brother's health. Uh, they were in Cuba during the summer. And he could not believe how hot and how humid it was. Um, uh, his brother didn't improve. They went back to New England. And it was just shortly thereafter that uh, he got a BHAG. And the BHAG that he got was in the middle of winter there in, uh, in Boston. They had all these frozen lakes. And he thought to himself, you know what we ought to do? Not we, what I ought to do, is that what I ought to do is figure out a way of taking the ice out of the lakes and shipping it to the Caribbean. Now this is in the 1800s. He didn't want to really share this with anybody because they would have a BHAG that he ought to be institutionalized because refrigeration did not exist. How in the world can you take ice out of a lake and ship it to Cuba without refrigeration? But he was convinced that it could be done. And he commenced on doing research. And what he did was he actually wound up buying a ship. Uh, he actually uh, fitted it out so that they could put blocks of ice, and he figured out a way to cut the ice. And, they, and, and how would you insulate? Uh, the ice would melt before it got to Cuba. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, in a book called The Frozen Water Trade, um, I just, I'll just read you from the, from the cover jacket. On, on February 13, 1806, the brig favorite left Boston Harbor bound for the Caribbean island of Martinique with a cargo that few imagined would survive that month-long voyage. Packed in hay in the hold were large, large chunks of ice cut from a frozen lake in Massachusetts. This was the first venture of a young Boston entrepreneur, Frederick Tudor, who believed he could make a fortune selling ice to people in the tropics. Ridiculed from the outset by fellow merchants, Tudor endured years of hardship before he was to fulfill his dream. Over 30 years, he and his rivals extended the frozen water trade to Cuba, Charleston, New Orleans, New York, London, and finally to Calcutta, India. When in 1833, more than 100 tons of ice survived a four-month journey of 16,000 miles with two crossings of the equator. For the next 50 years, Calcutta, Bombay, and Madras eagerly awaited their regular supplies of New England ice. This guy wound up making millions and millions of dollars.
because he had a B-H-A-G, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Now, that was a business goal. Not every B-H-A-G is a business goal. Um, you got a B-H-A-G in your life. Is there a big, hairy, audacious goal that you'd like to see happen in your life? If you come from a broken home and you know the pain of a divorce, you know what it is to have a split family, um, and you're married and you're getting started in life, probably your B-H-A-G is to have a godly home and, a, and establish a Christian marriage so that your children don't have to go through what you went through as a kid. That's a B-H-A-G. And you know what? That's a great goal. If, uh, if, I get nervous when people are behind me, Taylor. I didn't know that was you. That's all right. Thank you. What is the noise? What are we hearing here? Okay. I hear singing. I hear singing, but you know, I often hear singing. <laughs> it may be. Yeah, all right. If I hold the mic. This mic. Or, you know, we could go over there and just tell them not sing. We could do that, but we're not. Are we all right? You guys okay? Yeah, yeah what the heck. Yeah. Yeah, you, get, yeah you, guys, you guys aren't computing what I'm saying anyway. I mean, you know, what does it matter here? Big, hairy, audacious goals. Not every B-H-A-G is a business goal. Uh, it, it would be a B-H-A-G to have a strong relationship with your wife. Here's another B-H-A-G. Would to become a man of godly character. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, why don't you turn over there with me? Although we're on our way to Nehemiah, we'll stop in 1 Timothy 3 because I think Nehemiah displays the characteristics uh, that we would see in 1 Timothy 3 in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is coaching this young rookie pastor by the name of Timothy. And he has left Timothy in charge uh, of a church, and Timothy is in over his head, and Timothy is not quite sure what to do. And, and so Paul, one of the things that Paul is instructing Timothy to do is to appoint leaders for that local church. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy 3. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or the office of elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. Uh, and, and, then, and then he's going to go down the line here, and he's going to give us some character qualifications. Uh, we appoint men to leadership in the church, not based on their net worth or not based on their education or not based on their connections in the community but on, uh, on the quality of their character. Uh, you may not aspire to actually be an elder and serve as an elder in a local church, but you should certainly aspire to have the character qualifications uh, that are described and outlined in your life. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. It's talking about character. The husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man, or a one-woman kind of man. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the trap of the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Those are all uh, great goals to ask God to develop in your life. You see, that's a B-H-A-G. Uh, Nehemiah had a B-H-A-G. We left him last week uh, getting ready to start a great work. The B-H-A-G in, in Nehemiah's life that God had put on his heart was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's not a big deal to us. It was a big deal to him. Uh, Jerusalem was the city of God. 
it was the city of the Jews. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that because of the um, poor leadership that Israel had been under for hundreds of years, uh, the people had drifted from God because the leaders had drifted from God. Uh, they became uh, worse than the people that were surrounding them, who were the pagans. Uh, God took them into captivity as a discipline. They were in captivity for 70 years. Nehemiah was born in captivity. Uh, but it was his desire. He was 800 miles to the east. He was in Persia. Uh, he was the cupbearer to the king. He was uh, in the king's inner circle. He was a confidant of the king. His brother returned from a visit to Jerusalem, told him that the city was in shambles. The temple had been rebuilt. Uh, nothing of the glory of Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed, but a temple had been put up. But the walls were still down, and there was no protection, and the people that were back there were, were extremely vulnerable to attack. God put it on his heart to, uh, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, that was a big deal, because in order to do that, he had to get the attention of, of, of a king who was a pagan uh, and get that king to go against the king's best interest and let him return and do that. Uh, kings are not known for going against what's best for them. And it was, it was an act of God that God gave him favor with the king and allowed him to go back to Jerusalem. So last week, we saw him arrive at Jerusalem. We saw his entrance. And we saw the wisdom that was in his life. And he was getting ready to commence a great work. Hudson Taylor said that there are three stages in the work of God. Impossible, difficult, done. Let me say that again. There are three stages in the work of God. The first is impossible. That's the first stage. See. Because, see, God often calls us to be HAGs. And I'm talking about every one of us in this room. God has a work for each of us to do. Uh, it'll be different than the work that the other guy does. It, it may not be as well known as, as someone who, like Hudson Taylor. What did Hudson Taylor do? Hudson Taylor went to China. Well, all kinds of guys were going to China back then. I mean, I, I mean there, were, there, were, there were British missionaries all up and down the coast of China. Now, why were they on the coast of China? Because it was comfortable on the coast of China. Because they had developed little, uh, little, little British colonies, if you were. Uh, they, they, they had set it up so that it was comfortable for them to go and uh, talk to the Chinese people about Jesus Christ but they did it in a context that was not unlike where they had left home. Hudson Taylor was a guy, he started something called the China Inland Mission. And what Hudson Taylor did was that he decided to go where no missionary had ever gone before. He didn't stay on the coast, he went inland. Nobody went inland. You know why they didn't go inland? Because it wasn't like England. Um, you know what Hudson Taylor did? He had the audacity to grow his hair long and, and and to uh, have a ponytail. He had the audacity not to dress as a British gentleman, but to dress as a Chinese man. He had the audacity to learn the language. He had the audacity not to ask them to become like him, but he was willing to assume their culture and become like them so that he could tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went where nobody else had ever gone before. And they said, you can't do that. That's absolutely nuts. And here's the other thing. He decided that when he went to China, he was going to go trusting in God alone. Completely, totally, he was going to trust in God. Uh, if you asked Hudson Taylor if he had a financial need, he'd tell you that all his needs were met by Christ Jesus, who would meet all his needs according to his riches and glory. Uh, it was Hudson Taylor who said that the Lord's work done in the Lord's way has the Lord's provision. Uh, in order to prepare himself for going to China, uh, for several years before, he disciplined himself. Uh, he, he had a very meager salary. He gave the majority of his salary away. Uh, he figured if he couldn't live on, on a minimal level in England, how could he live on a minimal Engl uh, level in, in China? So uh, he began to discipline himself. And he began to trust God for his finances. Uh, when he got to uh, China, he went inland. 
he had, uh, and, and this is amazing, he did not have a group of people that had committed to support him monthly. Uh, he did not have a financial team. Uh, he did not have uh, a website. Uh, he didn't have uh, fax updates for people back in England. He just went. He just went, and he wanted to reach those people, and he trusted God to meet his needs. Uh, if you read the story of Hudson Taylor, and the, and the story is called, the book is called uh, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It's an amazing story. He had a big, hairy, audacious goal to go inland into China to preach the gospel, and that's exactly what happened. It's amazing how God used that man. Um, that's why he would say there are three stages to the work of God. What's the first stage? Impossible. What's the next stage? Difficult. What's the third stage? Done. Uh, the work's not done in China. You, you know what's interesting? What's interesting is that there was a time when the missionaries all had to leave China because of, of the persecution that was going on and because, well, just contextually, they had to get out of China. A, a, a lot of people were, were heartbroken because the work that had been done uh, for a couple of hundred years in China, they figured the work was finished. Now, you know what? Is the work finished in China when the missionaries left? No. You know what's happening in China? The church is proliferating. They can't stop it. Th there is revival going on in China. Why is there revival going on in China? Because there's something called persecution. The very thing that we don't want. We have a movement in America called the church growth movement. Uh, you won't find the church growth movement in the scriptures. You'll just find it in journals and periodicals. Uh, when I say that, the church growth movement is very big on marketing. The church growth movement is very big on, uh, on taking secular concepts and adapting those concepts to a church so that a church can grow. God has his own church growth program. His church growth program is found in the book of Acts, and it's called persecution. They all huddled in Jerusalem because God was doing some good things. He was doing some wonderful things. Why would you want to leave Jerusalem when things were going so well? So what did God send on Jerusalem? He sent persecution. So they started to scatter. You see, That's how the Great Commission started to be fulfilled because it got uncomfortable. Uh, a lot of times, God will give us a big, hairy, audacious goal, and then what will happen is God will meet the goal in a way that we had not anticipated. Um, what is it that you'd like God to see? What would you like to see God do in your life? What, what is it that you feel that God would like to do in your life? Um, it, it doesn't have to be a world-shaking thing. But it has to be something that, that stretches you. It has to be something that when you look at it, you say, you know, that, that just seems impossible to me. That, that seems... Um, I don't see any way that that could work out. Um, let's go to Nehemiah. And, and let's just see exactly where he is. Uh, he has arrived in Jerusalem, which is amazing because it was virtually impossible that he would be set free by the king to go do this task. But God gave him favor. Uh, so now he shows up, and he makes his appearance. And what you, what you have back there in Nehemiah chapter 2 is that he shows up in, in Jerusalem. He kind of scopes it out. He does a uh, reconnaissance mission. And we left him in, in uh, chapter 2. And pick up verse 17. He said to the people that he gathered, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Now, let me give you a principle. Whenever God begins a work, opposition will immediately appear. That was true in Nehemiah's life, it'll be true in your life. Whenever God begins a good work, opposition will immediately appear. When a guy gets serious about following Christ, we've said this in here many times, when a man gets serious about following Christ, 
the enemy gets serious about the man. When a guy decides, I'm, I want to be a godly man. I want to be a committed husband. I didn't grow up with that. I didn't see it. My dad wasn't that way. But you know what? That's what I want to be. I, I want to follow Christ. I want Christ to develop by his spirit and by his word character in my life. I want him to make me into a man that's a man of God. You're going to get opposition because God is about ready. He's going to commence a great work. When the Lord begins to commence a great work, opposition will be there immediately. You can count on it. So what happens? Nehemiah is getting ready to commence the work. The people say, let's do it. Let's rebuild the wall. Verse 19. But when Sadmalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Well, no, they weren't rebelling against the king. They had the permission of the king. But see, these are scoffers. Uh, these, were, these were government bureaucrats who held power and didn't want anybody rocking the boat. They wanted control. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 3, chapter 3 is the uh, description of how they began to work on the wall. And last week we gave you a handout, and it showed you the, the wall of Jerusalem and the different gates. And what you have in chapter 3 is you have the description of the different people who were working at the different section of the wall and the different section of the gates in order to rebuild the wall. That's what chapter 3 is all about. So they're getting to work. Now, you go to chapter 4. And we get back to the opposition. This is real life stuff. So they're at work. They're going for it. He's got them organized, but there's immediate opposition, but they stay with it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sambalat heard that we were re rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers. And the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Well, no one ever said they were going to finish in a day. But see, once again, he's mocking them. He is, uh, uh, he is being sarcastic. He's being a critic. Uh, Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Well, a fox is a very small animal, very lightweight animal. Uh, there, there was no truth to what he was saying, but again, these guys are mockers. They're scoffers. This is opposition. Um, up front, let me, give you, let me give you three principles, and then we're going to observe this text as we go through it. First, first one I already gave you. When God begins a good work, opposition will appear. Here's the second one. Satan's, Satan's primary tool to undermine the work of God is discouragement. Satan's primary tool to undermine the work of God is discouragement. That's what happened here. Um, and we're going to see it. Now, now, Nehemiah jumps in, and what does he do? Does he go after these guys? Does, uh, you know what he does? He goes right to the Lord. Notice his prayer in verse 4 and 5. He said, Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. Now, he's praying a pretty aggressive prayer, isn't he? But, but you've got to understand something. He has grounds to pray this prayer because God said in Genesis 12 about the Jews and about Abraham and about the nation of Israel um, that those who bless you, them will I bless. Those who curse, God will curse. Uh, he prays this about these men because this was the very work of God that they were about. And these men were opposed. Notice that Nehemiah wasn't taking vengeance 
But he was going to God and asking God to take vengeance. He was asking God to put these guys in the right place. That's always a great thing to do with enemies, is you ask God to deal with them. You ask God to give, don't you take revenge, you let God handle that situation. Uh, here's the third principle I, I was going to give to you. Because you see, God's, uh, Satan's primary tool to undermine the work of God is discouragement. By what these guys said, he says they've demoralized the builders. They're discouraged. Uh, they're being mocked. They're being ridiculed. We, we, we said maybe you, uh, you grew up in a home, broken home. Uh, you, you want to establish a godly home. You know what? There, it, it could be that some people in your family will ridicule you and scoff at you. Uh, the people that you should be supporting you the most uh, will absolutely mock you. Uh, when, when you commence to do the work of God, opposition is going to come up, and the enemy is going to do whatever he can do to discourage you. I think that's his greatest weapon. I, I, I think he knows how to push our buttons. I think he knows how to hit us when we're, when we're physically fatigued. Uh, he knows how to hit us when, um, when we've worked hard and we're not seeing the results that we wanted to receive. A lot of us guys are result-oriented. We love results. Because results are tangible fruit of the effort you have put into something. When we don't get results, we get frustrated. And we get discouraged, you see. Um, Satan loves to discourage his, God's men from doing the work that God has called them to do. Um, we, we want instantaneous maturity. Sometimes I wish there was a big, giant Christian microwave oven. You know how on microwaves? On the front of it, microwaves, they have, they'll tell you how long to cook stuff. I wish there was a big, giant Christian microwave that would say, um, um, maturity, three minutes. Or, um, you know, wisdom, four minutes. Or patience with children, three hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> Some things take a long time, regardless. But, you know, guys, the fact of the matter is, there are no Christian microwaves. Uh, microwaves are great instruments because they give you, they put it out in a hurry, right? I remember uh, before we had a microwave, we'd make popcorn. Took about, took about 20, 25 minutes the way I'd make popcorn. Because I did it, I, I did it a certain way. I'd get a pan, and then I, I, we're sitting there, we're watching a movie, say, hey, let's have some popcorn. Okay, great. So what I do is I'd have to go turn on the stove because you got to get that thing red. You don't have to, what do you call that thing? Coil. A coil. Thanks so much. <laughs> this guy went to A&M. <laughs> so you get the coil, you get the thing hot. You get it red hot. And then you get, I get a pan, an old pan, and I'd put some oil in the bottom and I'd put one kernel of corn. And so you got to wait. You got to wait. You got to wait. And finally you hear the <laughs> sucker would pop. So then you get the rest of it, you put it in there. And I'd put the lid on it, I'd do this. This is kind of how I'd do it. It'd take a while, you see. Then one day, Mary came home from Sam's with a microwave. This was last Tuesday. No, I <laughs> and And our, our, our lives changed because we bought this stuff called Orville Redenbacher's microwave. So what do we do? Throw it in the microwave, punch in about three and a half minutes. Take it out of the bag, it's all ready. Microwaves are great because microwaves are fast. There are no Christian microwaves. There are crockpots. <laughs> but there are no microwaves. Uh, we have a crockpot that sits in our kitchen counter. We've been married 26 years this summer. I've never used that crockpot in 26 years. And I never will. You know why? Because right on the front, it admits it. You know what it says? Right on the front, it says, slow cooker. It even reads slow. Um, now, you can put a chicken 
You can put a chicken in the microwave. Will it get done? Yeah. You can put a chicken in the crock pot. Will it get done? Yeah. Uh, is there a difference? The chicken that comes out of the crock pot is so tender that you can hardly get it out without it falling apart. Sometimes we get discouraged because we're not seeing results. And we are men who are result-oriented. We, we thought at this point in our life we'd be here, but we're here. And we get discouraged. We, we thought we would be further along in our marriage. We thought we'd be further along in our career. We thought we'd be uh, further along in, in, in battling this, this issue of pornography that's in our lives. And, and so we get, uh, we get frustrated and we get disappointed and we get discouraged. And, and we wonder why God doesn't fix it immediately. Uh, I, I believe that, that God has a divine crockpot. And he allows us to get in that crockpot. And he allows us to go slow. And, and, and what happens as, as it's a slow-moving process, what he does is he tenderizes us as men. A, a lot of us guys uh, are difficult to live with. A lot of us have real rough edges. Uh, a, a, a lot of us have good intentions, but there are areas of our lives that are not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. So what has to happen is he has to put us in this, in this pot, and, and it takes time, but he slowly tenderizes our hearts and tenderizes our spirits, and we submit to him and his way and his work and his time. That's what happens. But the enemy, while we're in that crockpot and while we're in that process, he loves to discourage us. Um, I never did give you the third principle. Here's the third one. <clears throat> if discouragement leads to paralysis, Satan wins that round. I'll give it to you again. If discouragement leads to paralysis, Satan wins that round. So what are you talking about here? Well, when we get discouraged, if we're not careful, we will stop work on what God has called us to do because we're not seeing the results we had hoped to see, so we give up. Notice the text here. Uh, he prays because the builders are demoralized. Verse 6, but I want you to note, he did not allow the discouragement to translate into paralysis. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. They didn't stop. They kept going. Uh, they stayed with the task. Notice now, the opposition is going to heat up. Verse 7. Notice that it's not only going to heat up and get more intense, but notice that there's more opposition. Now, when it came about that Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and now the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Uh, so now they're going to fight them. So what does Nehemiah do? But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Um, verse 10. Then in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is falling, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them. Now they're going to kill them and put a stop to the work. You see how the opposition is intensifying here? These guys are playing hardball. These guys are serious. Then I stationed the men in the lowest parts of the space between the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Um, this was serious business because their lives were on the line. Um, when when God calls us to do a great work, and when God wants to do a great work in our lives, there's a lot riding on it. Um, and the enemy knows that, and that's why we're going to experience opposition. 
and, and, and notice that as they stayed with it, as they stayed with it, the opposition intensified. It, it, got, it got more serious, and, and it got even life-threatening. Um, we have said that Nehemiah was a wise leader. He led by wisdom. Um, you, you take, you take uh, Hudson Taylor's um, prognosis of how God does a work. What's the first stage? Impossible. What's the second stage? Difficult. What's the third stage? Done. Okay. What that tells me is that if a work is impossible, there are going to be things that have to be overcome. That was true in Hudson Taylor's life. It was true in Nehemiah's life. It's true in my life. When, when God calls a man to be a leader, and he has called us all to be leaders, your husband, your father, your grandfather, you're a leader. Uh, he wants you to be the spiritual leader of your clan. He wants, I like what Dobson said, he wants you to be the tribal chief. Did you know that? He really does. Uh, we tend to have families in America that are, matri that are matriarchal. You know what that means? That means that women run the family. That's what it means. We, we have a problem in this culture. Uh, the problem is, is that we don't encourage men to be men. Uh, we have... Uh, we have confusion over what it even means to be a man. That's how far uh, uh, off we are from the scriptural mandate that God gave that this country was built upon. We, we have lost what it means to be a man. Our, our nation, uh, our culture does not value uh, biblical masculinity. Um, Stephen Clark has written a book called... Uh, Man and woman in Christ. And uh, it's just light bedside reading here, as you can tell. But uh, it's a wonderful book. He has a section in here called Manly Personality. Uh, Clark is a, uh, he's an interesting guy. He's a Roman Catholic theologian. But he's extremely biblical. Most Roman Catholic theologians are not biblical. They, they uh, hold to tradition rather than scripture. This guy's a rare bird. Um, I'll give you something. He, he's not only a theologian, but he's a sociologist. So he has several disciplines, and he critiques our modern culture. Uh, he's, he talks about something called, uh, and I, I touched on this last week. He, he speaks on something he calls the feminized man. When he says a feminized man, he doesn't mean a man who is effeminate. He doesn't mean a man who is inclined in any way to homosexuality. He's talking about a man who's been raised in a matriarchal culture, and his primary role models are not men, but they're women. Okay? You guys with me? Um, listen to what he says. Christians do not as easily identify the feminized male as someone for whom Christian manliness is a particular problem. That's a significant sentence. All right, let me say it again. I drink some coffee here. Drink some strong coffee and catch this. Christians do not as easily identify the feminized male as someone for whom Christian manliness is a particular problem. Why? Because most Christians don't know what a Christian man ought to look like. Because we've lost the concept, we've lost the idea. Last week we talked about the fact that most churches, most Christians think that the goal for a man is to be a nice guy. You just want to be a nice guy. Nice guys don't rock the boat. Don't, nice guys don't confront sin. Uh, nice guys turn the other way when, uh, when, you're, when your kid is disrespectful to your wife. You see? Because that's conflict. Well, you don't want conflict because you're a nice guy. You don't want to be a nice guy. Sometimes you want to be a nice guy. But that can't be the overriding goal of your life. God did not call us to be nice men. He called us to be godly men. You guys with me? Okay. Contemporary Christians often lack an ideal of manly character. And they do not value some of the character traits that ought to be prominent in a man. Like courage, aggressiveness, 
and readiness to lead in personal relationship situations when one is the proper person to do so. So, uh, so honey, uh, let's go out and eat. Okay, where do you want to go? Oh, I don't care. Where do you want to go? Oh, I don't care. Where do you want to go? Oh, it doesn't matter to me. Where do you? Somebody lead that deal. We're going to Chili's. That's where we're going. Now, that's an extreme set. But you guys see what I'm saying? See, it, uh, God in families has called the male to be the tribal chief. When there is a conflict in your family, who is the deciding arbiter? Should be you. But in a lot of families, it's the woman. That's not the way God intended it to be. Uh, let, me, let me jump to the next page, because he's got about three pages on this. He says, being feminized, then, is not the same as being effeminate or being feminine. A feminized male is a male who has learned to behave or react in ways that are more appropriate to women. The feminized male can be normal as a male, with no tendencies to reject being male, and no tendencies towards homosexuality, and yet he can have been so influenced by women, or can have been so identified himself with a world in which women dominate, that many of his interests and traits are wo more womanly than manly. Uh, compared to men who have not been feminized, he will place much higher emphasis and attention on how he feels and how other people feel. He will be much more subject, catch this, this is amazing. He will be much more subject to the approval of the group, especially emotionally expressed approval, that is how others feel about him, what he is doing and how others react to him. He will sometimes tend to relate by preference to women and other feminized or effeminate men and will sometimes have a difficult time with an all-male group. He will tend to fear women's emotions. And in his family and at work, he can easily be controlled by the possibility of women, his mother, his wife, his co-worker, having an emotional reaction. He will tend to idealize women, and if he is religious, he will tend to see in women the ideal Christians or the definition of what it means to be spiritual. Isn't that wild? How does this happen? Well, let me, and, and you say, well, what does this have to do with Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah was not feminine. Nehemiah did not grow up in a, in a matriarchal culture. Stop and think about this. How many of you guys grew up in the public school system in America? Okay? How many of you guys in first grade had a male teacher? I don't see one hand. How many of you in second grade had a male teacher? Third grade? Fourth grade? All right, we're starting to get, okay? Three of you guys. The only normal guys in the group. That was a joke. It wasn't funny, was it? Okay. You guys see my point? So what have we done in America? We take little boys, we put little boys in a situation where they are with women who have the best of intentions for eight hours a day. And then those women teachers will send notes home to fathers saying, we're having a problem with your son because he won't sit still. Huh? Oh, they sent the notes to the mothers. Right. But, but did you guys see what I'm saying? How did this develop? Let me ask you something. Did God intend for little boys to sit in a desk eight hours a day and be still? No, he didn't. You know that's not how God intended for boys to be raised. When we hit the Industrial Revolution, we had a problem. Because what the Industrial Revolution did is that the Industrial Revolution meant for the first time in history that men in order to work and provide for their families, they went outside the home. Something called factories were developed. Up until then, men worked, but they worked in the home. If you were a farmer, you'd get up in the morning, and you'd walk 100 yards, and you'd work on your crops. If you were a silversmith, your house was attached to your shop, to the side, to the rear, or above. You would walk out one door into another room, and you'd be at work. Uh, you had children. Uh, the wife was responsible to raise the children up until the age of six or seven. Then the boys would go with their fathers and be apprenticed by their fathers. And the primary individual in their life, basically 14, 15 hours a day for boys, would be who? Be their fathers. You read the article in the World Book Encyclopedia on the Industrial Revolution, and it goes through this big article, long and then the last phrase is, about men going into factories and being taken out of the home? It says, and serious social evils developed. 
Isn't that ironic? Why? Because men were taken out of the homes. Uh, for thousands of years, men did not have a question about what it meant to be a man. But see, we live in a culture where guys are confused. Why are we confused? Because we have turned the scripture on its head and we have violated basic, uh, basic common sense biblical principles about how children are to be raised and how they are to be reared. Now you say, wait a minute, I gotta have a job and I gotta work. Yeah, I know. Twice a week, if you've got kids that are six, seven, nine, twelve, and fifteen, well, you can. But you're an idiot if you do. If you excuse the uh, the loving uh, gesture there, uh, you're missing the boat, man. You got so much discretionary time. Is that not right? Where are you going to invest that time? Well, it depends on what you want to do with your time. See, a, a, a big, hairy, audacious goal would be to raise children that come to know Jesus Christ and, that, and your boys grow up to be godly men and your daughters grow up to be godly women. Now, there's a B-H-A-G. Would you not agree with that? That's better than shipping ice to Calcutta. Don't you think? Because Tudor, with all the millions that he made, after he died, his wife went through his letters and found out he was carrying on an affair for 30 years she didn't know anything about. So what kind of legacy is that? You say, well, now, now in this culture, for you to be a purposeful man to achieve a BHAG like that, you're going to have to overcome some opposition. Would you agree with that? Because the culture is not wired that way. My point in saying all this is that whenever God wants to do a work and he puts something in our hearts, we're going to have to overcome opposition. That's what it means to be a godly leader. Let me show you the opposition that Nehemiah had to overcome. <clears throat> uh, number one, he had to overcome the immediate opposition. Sambalat, Tobiah, all these guys. Number two, he had to overcome discouragement. Because he was, he's just a regular guy. He wants to see results. The builders want to see results. So discouragement shows up. As discouragement will show up in the task that you're attempting to do uh, as you follow the Lord. Uh, he had to overcome paralysis. When, when he had opposition, he had to convince those people to keep working. Um, interestingly enough, we, we talked about paralysis, and what I, what I mean by paralysis is he was able to offset the discouragement and the people had a mind to work. He was able to lead them. He was able to get them to stick to the task. Um, he, he also overcame passivity. Uh, look at verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said. Now let's just stop right there for a minute. You've got to understand something here. Thus it was said in Judah. Judah is one of the tribes of Israel. Okay? It was said in Judah, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, there is much refuge, there's much work to do. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. This is discouragement from inside the camp. What you had earlier was discouragement from outside the camp. See, and you'll face both. As, as, as you are working with the Lord. You're going to face discouragement from outside, but what is the most difficult is discouragement from inside. That's what's tough. Um, <clears throat> see, <clears throat> there's much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. You know what's interesting? They were half done. At this point, they were half done. They had the ball. They, they had it halfway up as high as it needed to be. Oftentimes, that's the toughest place, is when you're halfway there. Because you look back and you see all that it took for you to get there, and you're not sure you... I'm not, I'm not able to complete this. You know what's great about the Lord? He who began a good work in you will what? Will bring it to completion. When God starts a work, God finishes a work. Uh, does he do it on our timetable? No. Does he do it without opposition? No. There are going to be things to overcome. Um, <clears throat> in 
Th these guys started getting real serious in opposition. And, and here's something else they had to overcome. They had to, they had to overcome fear. Uh, did you catch that? I mean, this is getting so serious in verse 13. Um, he said, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the spaces behind the wall, the exposed places. I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. Uh, we're going to see next week just exactly how they did that. But um, uh, he's had, these guys are having to fight for their families. When I saw, catch this, verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. <clears throat> let, me, let me lay this out to you. Godly men are willing to fight for their families. Godly men are willing to fight for righteousness. Um, when I was 12 years old, we moved from one city to another one 500 miles away. Um, I'd been raised in the Central Valley of California, which was like being raised in, quite frankly, in Oklahoma, because everybody there was from Oklahoma. We moved to a suburb that was right next door to San Francisco, and it was absolute culture shock. I did not fit. It was a city situation. I was not a city kid. Different. I, I mean, it was totally different. And there was a kid in this school who was the biggest kid in the school that decided he didn't like me. His name was Harold Fast. If you see him, I want to talk to him. <laughs> Harold Fast was the biggest, meanest kid in that school. And Harold Fast decided that he did not like me. And he started making my life miserable. And this guy started in Tim, and, and I didn't get any growth until I was about 15 or 16. I was an average sized kid. This kid was huge. And, and he started demoralizing me. He started telling me what he was going to do, and he was going to wait for me after school. And I want to tell you something. There was no way I could handle I mean, there was no way I could handle this kid. And, and he was rough, and he had some friends. This went on for months. And I remember one night going in and talking to my dad. I told my dad about this guy. And I said, Dad, you know what? This guy, this guy is going to, this guy is going to get me this week. And I, it was the biggest thing in my life. I, just, I mean, you guys ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? This was huge. I remember my dad saying, Steve, here's what we're going to do. He didn't say, here's what you're going to do. He said, here's what we're going to do. He said, what you're going to do tomorrow? Because this kid at a certain class, in gym class, outside, he would always call me a particular name, and everybody would laugh. He said, here's what you're going to do tomorrow. You're going to walk out there. When he calls you that name, what I want you to do is that I want you to, I want you to turn to him, and I want you to cold cock that sucker right in the chops. I want, you, I want you to hit him with everything you got. And I said, Dad, I can't. And he said, you do it in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. But you know what? You know what? He was teaching me a biblical principle. Uh, he knew that I needed to learn stand up and face my fear. You know what the word was in my mind? I was just like Hudson Taylor. Impossible. And he said, that's what I want you to do. He said, I want to tell you, you can, you can handle this guy. I said, Dad, you've never, you don't know. He said, I'm telling you, you can handle him. See, my dad knew things that I didn't know. Um, the next day, we prayed before we, I went off to school. I can remember being on that bus like it was this morning. I, I mean, my life was passing before my eyes. I mean, I, was, I, I cannot tell you the fear that was in my heart. But, but on the other hand, I was so sick and tired of living that way. Second, I still remember it. Second period. Coach Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N. We walk out there. I'm walking out. We had numbers. You had to get on your number. I'm Farrar. He's fast. I get on my number, he's standing there, he turns, he calls me this name, and I said, Harold, and he turned, and I cold cocked that sucker with everything I had. And then, you see, you have impossible, and then you have difficult. <laughs> because then, 
if Harold ever got up, I mean, I, I, I mean, I caught him good. But then, but then I got him in a headlock, and there was a basketball post there, and I rammed his head in the basketball post. <laughs> and then Coach Salmon, I'll never forget, he said, you animals. That's what he called. He said, you animals, knock it off. And then, and then I'm sweating. What's going to happen? We got in the locker room. You know what's amazing? We got in the locker room, and Harold Fast walked up to me. And he said, hey, Steve, I'm really sorry. Man, I didn't mean to. And you know what? Harold Fast suddenly became my best friend. I want to tell you something. I learned a ton of biblical exegesis out of that situation in my life. You know what I learned? And see, now some of you would say, your dad shouldn't have told you to hit that guy. You know what I'd say to you? I'd say you're feminized. Because see, my dad knew that one day I would have to stand up against issues that were a lot more significant than Harold Fast. You see? Now, could my dad guarantee me that I wouldn't get hurt? No. But see, what he had to, what he had to do was teach me not to be paralyzed by fear. Because down the road, I was going to face a whole bunch of issues, a lot bigger than that. And if I was paralyzed by fear, I couldn't be the man and the leader that God wanted me to be. Can I be honest with you guys? I think God went with me out on that playground. I mean that with all my heart. Because I learned a lesson there. Now, did my dad tell me to go around and pick fights and all that? No, no, you don't do that. Because you're not to be pugnacious. But there's a point where you stand. Nehemiah stood and he encouraged the men to stand. Look at that last verse. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And join a peace protest for your brothers your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. It's not what it says. Look at that. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and what? Fight. And fight. So how do you apply this? How do you apply this? If uh, Clark goes on in this book, and I don't have time to read it. But Clark goes on and says, one of the things that we do not value in Christian men is aggressiveness. Aggressiveness. Um, I saw a deal in 60 minutes or 48 seconds or whatever that program is, 48 minutes a while back, about a guy that was a uh, grocery store manager for a big chain in California. And this guy, uh, they were doing an expose on him because he, for 25 years, had a trail of harassing women that worked for him. Uh, uh, intimidating them uh, verbally and physically, coming up and grabbing their breast. And it wasn't two or three women. It was like 35, 40 women. And they did this whole hour thing on this guy. You know, they walk in with the mic and he won't talk to them and the whole, the whole big deal. I'm watching this. And, and they're, they're interviewing woman after woman after woman after woman. And you know what I started thinking? I started thinking to myself, any of these women married? Any of these women have husbands? Any of these women Christians? Any of these women married to guys who are Christians? How come there was not one instance of a man walking in and saying to that guy, hey, you keep your cotton-picking hands off my wife. You got that straight? You don't ever touch her again. Or we're going to have a Bible study. <laughs> and you say, oh, well, you can't. See, oh, you can't. Hey, wait a minute. You're telling me you wouldn't do that for your wife? See, we don't have anybody. We don't have guys coming in and attacking our houses and, and all this right now. This is what they were facing. But you see, we have gotten so screwed up on what it means to be a masculine Christian male that some of us would never entertain the thought of going in a situation like that and fighting for our wife. Years ago, my wife worked in a Christian situation where the guy who was her boss, who was a Christian and a leader, several times in a row made statements to her that were, quite frankly, um, inappropriate. 
And it was starting to discourage her. So I pick up the phone. And I called this guy and I said, hey, I wonder if we got some time this week we can get together. And he said, well, yeah. And, you know, how's Thursday for lunch? He said, fine. I said, great, I look forward to seeing you. About 10 minutes later, he calls me back and he said, I, I, I just want to ask you, um, is the, uh, as to the nature of why we need to get together. And I said, well, you know, probably best if we could talk about that over lunch. He said, well, is there a problem? And I said, well, yeah, there is. But why don't we talk about it over lunch? He said, well, can you tell me what, I mean, he said, I'd really like to know what it is. And I said, you know, it'd probably be best if we could do this face to face. He said, well, you know what? I, 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 I'll tell you what, I'm not going to sleep tonight unless you tell me. And I said, okay, well, let me tell you what it is. You said this, and you said this, and you said this. And I said, you know what? You're a better man than that. Uh, your wife would be ashamed if, he heard, if she heard you say that. Uh, you've made my wife very uncomfortable. And, and, I, and you know what? I just care about you enough to let you know that doesn't need to happen anymore. And I want, I want you to tell me it's not going to happen. And he was great. And, and he was a good brother, and he handled it, and he, was, he handled it. So why am I going into this, guys? This is basic Christianity 101. Um, you, you know what? Does your wife, do your kids have a sense that you'll go to war for them? They need to know that. Does your daughter know that if some guy at school bothers her, that you're going to be there for her? Uh, not a hothead, not a guy going off and being crazy. You know that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being a man. Um, Nehemiah was a man. He was willing to fight opposition. He was willing to take on discouragement. He was willing. Let me tell you something. What, you, what God has given you in your home is so precious. Don't be surprised if along the line you get some opposition. Don't be surprised if along the line somewhere there's not someone who takes an interest in your wife. You know what you need to do if you sense that happening? You need to be there and you need to be a buffer. Am I getting across at all? I'm not talking about being a hothead. I'm not talking about being a weirdo. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying she needs to be secure that she's got a man that will stand up for her. and go. See, that's what it means to be a Christian man. See, because if you can't do that, there may be a day coming. See, God's bringing revival in China. God may re bring revival to America, but not the way we were hoping. There may be persecution coming one day to America, and there may be somebody in this pulpit downstairs 40 years from now when Chuck is gone and with the Lord, you know, and David's in a rest home somewhere. There may be a time when it's against the law to say certain things. We need a man who's got the courage to stand in that pulpit and say it from the Word of God. But see, if he hasn't learned to face fear and fight for his family, how is he ever going to fight for the truth and fight for the gospel? You guys getting my drift? So this week, if a situation presents itself, you take a stand for what's right. That's all I'm saying. And the Spirit of God will give you wisdom what to say and what to handle, how to do it in that situation. See, we can stand here and look at Nehemiah and the wall, and oh yeah, they built the wall and the temple. Hey, what about us? You see? What about us? We got a society. You talk about the walls being down. My gosh, I mean, it's, it's, there's rubble all around us. Somebody needs to be a Nehemiah. This week in this, in this town, in Frisco, in Plano, Fort Worth, wherever you live, somebody needs to be in Nehemiah. Let's start building the wall and let's not be afraid. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be men. Not men who are out of control, but men who are under the control of the Spirit of God. Men uh, who, uh, who love you and are willing to be obedient, and Lord, we're just guys, we have fears. 
we have things that happen and we get intimidated. That's happened to every one of us. But God, we want to uh, overcome those fears. Uh, we don't want to be passive. Uh, we don't want to be feminized. We want to be willing to face our fear and if necessary, fight. Fight for a principle. Fight for a truth. Uh, fight for our wives. Uh, fight for our children. Lord, this has become a very foreign idea, and it can even be misconstrued as, as we broach it and as we approach it. Father, I pray that you'll give us wisdom with our sons and with our grandsons, that we will understand that they need time with us. They don't need things from us. They need time with us. They need to be with men in order so that they can become the men that you want them to be. Help us to be wise with our discretionary time. Help us to be wise in our relationships. Lord, uh, help us to be willing to trust you when it looks like it's impossible. And even, Lord, when it's half done and it looks difficult. Uh, you're the God who will bring it to completion. And one day, uh, we will be able to say, done. Done. And what we want to hear when we stand before you is not just done. We want to hear, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you for the encouragement you give us from the word of God to be balanced men who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and stand on the truth of the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I didn't mean to go this long, guys, <clears throat> but I did. We all right? Hey, listen, let me pray. You, you know what? Before you go, before you go, um, I, I almost forgot this. I don't want to forget this. If you need to leave, leave. But you know what? Grab two or three guys around you, and let's pray for one another before we get out of here. All right? Somebody has something on their heart. We just don't want to hear it and walk out. Uh, if there's a guy that has a need, let's just, just, just find out, break up, pray, then we're out of here. Is that a deal? Let's do it. All right.